Hey y'all. What's up y'all? We uh we've been listening to some Jaw Rule to pump us up. <laughs> we've been I don't know, I've been reading and sharing with Tori public speaking tips and one of them was to read, no no no, to listen to music that pumps you up <laughs> before you go out cuz it gets you hyphy, you know? Oh sure. And um I hope you can tell we're we're super hyphy right now. <laughs> Jaw Rule came in <laughs> to pump us up. Exactly. So there's that. Um, welcome back. Welcome. Or welcome for your first time. Welcome for your first time. I like what we did in the last series, the two-parter, where we showed everybody around. So <laughs> so come on in. You're right. Don't mind the mess. Don't mind the mess. Um, welcome. If this is your first time, over here, what did we say you'll find? Uh, F-bombs. Right. You will find some F-bombs. You will find some... Well, that's not over here. Over there, you would find 90s references, heavy on the friends, mm -hmm, also some mm -hmm. letter kinny, things like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, today, you'll want to step over my intense hatred for Casey Anthony. It's <laughs> bubbled up again. I don't know what's happened, but I can't, can't stop yelling about her. I don't think that you're the only one, though. No, no. I think we all hate her low-key all the time. High-key? <laughs> I think you can Sometimes. say high-key. Yeah. Yeah, what's the opposite of low-key? Oh, and you'll also find um, in this cabinet here, hmm? you'll find the large helpings of a little bit of levity, a little bit of seriousness where it needs to be, and the, how, how I say, <laughs> um, we've gotten some reviews that were not so smart. That's not, we're just like, we're gal-palling around here with you. So that's what you need to get ready for. I don't think that they're wrong, though, because you couldn't think of a different word for smart. I never can. You know, this is the second time we've done this, and I couldn't, <laughs> twice I couldn't do it. So. Lack of intelligence. Any of those things. Right. They're all true. None right. of them are wrong. So <laughs> that being said, welcome in, welcome back, whatever, whichever right. is your case. And we're going to cover I Love You, Now Die. Which I want to start off by saying the title of it is dead on like it makes sense but i hate it oh yeah, yeah yeah i love you now die that sounds like a fucking lifetime original movie well it kind of is and also the opening so i'll play the trailer here in just a second but the um i guess opening credits or whatever they show it's really well done the music is well done and everything like that but they have like the smoke almost like, I guess the carbon monoxide is the effect they're going for, but you can just see it kind of filtering in. It feels, it feels, it's like despair. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think they, I think they did a good job. I see what they're trying to do with it, but, um, it made me feel some feelings. Oh yeah. It really did. And I think that's what they wanted. Yeah, I think so. So without further ado, here's the trailer. I saw him text her all the time, but I didn't think that they had a relationship like that. It's sort of impossible to understand what happened because it's so far from, you know, acceptable human behavior. trial of a Plainville woman accused of encouraging her friend to kill himself through text messages is now underway. We're all left wondering what happened. Now we have this opportunity to see inside their minds. One level of the conversation is a kid that's going to kill himself. And there's another level that's a romantic fantasy. Question is, can you cause someone else to commit suicide? She keeps at him, Your Honor, at him and at him. The defendant's own words. His death was my fault. I told him to get back in. Mr. Roy himself stated, I want to die. She thought she was doing absolutely the right thing. It's a perfect storm of a tragedy. 
We open with on-screen text. It says Michelle Carter and Conrad Roy fell in love in 2012. They lived an hour away from each other and met no more than five times, but they exchanged thousands of text messages over the years. This is their story. We get beautiful footage of a beach in, I'm probably going to say this wrong, Mattapoiset? Mattapoiset? I think so, yeah. Massachusetts from July 12th, 2014. Or, well, I'm sure the footage is not from them, but this is what they're telling us. July 12th, 2014 is where we're kicking off our story. We see texts back and forth from Michelle and Conrad. Conrad says, I love you so much. She says, I love you forever. He says, I'm in the worst pain right now. Like, it's unbearable. Michelle replies, I think it's time to do it now then. It's okay to be scared and it's normal. And then she says, I mean, you're about to die. I, I, I don't know. Oh, also trigger warning, probably. Like, mm-hmm. a lot of suicide, talk, severe depression, social anxiety. Like, there's a lot of stuff in here that is really, really tough to listen to. So. Well, and we're going to touch on some eating disorders, things like that. So yes. Yeah. It's, there's a lot here. If so. it's not your jam, maybe this is not the best time to either join us or um, come visit in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. The door will be open the next time you want to come visit. Yeah. Though. We are so ready to have you back. For sure. Maybe just skip these. Yeah. We see clips from the coverage of the manslaughter trial once Michelle is charged for her part in causing Conrad's death. His death was my fault. I could have stopped him. I was on the phone with him and he got out of the car because it was working. He got scared and I fucking told him to get back in. The defendant's own words, 17-year-old Michelle Carter, who for weeks badgered, berated her depressed boyfriend, Conrad Roy, 18 years old, into killing himself. And on July 12, 2014, as his truck was filling with carbon monoxide, he was scared. He got out. It was the defendant on the other end of the phone who ordered him back in, then listened for 20 minutes as he cried in pain, took his last breath, and died. She assisted and devised and advised and planned his suicide. She reasoned him out of his reservations. She told him that once he was dead, he would be free and happy. She pushed him to kill himself sooner rather than later. And she used Conrad as a pawn in her sick game of life and death. This is a two-part documentary, and it's been requested several times using our case submission form. Plug for that. If you want to leave us a submission, you can go to our website, killerqueenspodcast.com slash case submission, and uh, Sloan will get it, and she will tell us how many times you requested it. So this one's been requested three times. Special thanks to Danny Tomblin, Emily McBlain, and Cheyenne for the suggestion. Hey, girl, hey. Thanks, guys. Part one is called The Prosecution. So from this, we can tell that we're going to get a one-sided portrayal of the story, and we can presume part two is going to be the defense. So, you know, just buckle up and get ready for all the shit against Michelle, I guess. On July the 13th, 2014, a call is put out over Fairhaven, Massachusetts, police radio to find a missing 18-year-old boy named Conrad Roy. Fairhaven is not pronounced Fairhaven by people who live there. Like, when the dad said it, I was, like, I had the subtitles on. I'm, like, thank God I did because it was so, like, it ran together in, like, one syllable almost. I was, like, so, but wow. How did, do, do us a reenactment. Oh, I don't, I, I don't even know. It was just, like, bam, like that. <laughs> it was such a small sound. I was, like, did you just say Fairhaven? So, I don't know. I'm pronouncing it like a southern lady here. Yes. Well, not a lady, but... Well, a southern trash bag. (laughs) We then meet Conrad's mother, Lynn, and she said he'd never not come home before and she knew something was really wrong. And she said she felt a rush come over her that she'd never felt like he'd passed through her. And she's still like, even in this day, this is years later, a few years later, she still looked like puffy from crying all day and all night almost. And that's not shade to her at all, but it's just that you can see how She's so immensely affected to this day. And she doesn't, in, when she's on the screen, you don't see her actually crying during the, I mean, she kind of tears up at some point. Yeah. Um, but you can tell 
how upset she still obviously is. Like it's She just, looks like depleted. Yes. Like a shell of a person. Yes. Yeah. Just like, it's so sad. It's so sad. Her or Conrad's father. Okay. So Conrad's father is also Conrad. And there Conrad's grandfather is Conrad. Yes. So we've got Conrad Sr., which is the grandfather. And then we have Conrad Jr. That they call Co. They call Co. And then they have Conrad the third, which is the Conrad that we are talking about. So we're going to call Conrad, Conrad. And I, I just started saying Co. For the dad. For the dad in the yeah. notes because they call him that so much. So And if we ever bring up the grandfather, we could say G- Sr. maybe. Yes. That's a great plan. Okay. Let's do it. So Co says he got a call that they'd found Conrad's truck at the Kmart with caution tape around it. And they drove over there and learned that Conrad had passed away. And everyone's super emotional telling the story. Like this boy was loved. People loved him. He died from carbon monoxide poisoning. And in case you're wondering, Sloan, I researching this, I cried by eight o'clock in the morning. So <laughs> today it was before eight. Um, to hear a mother, they talked to Lynn again, and they asked her, did you go to the Kmart? And she's like, no, I couldn't. Like, she said if I had gone there and had been with the body, she his body, yeah, she's like, I couldn't have left him. And just to hear a mother, like, talk about their child as a body is heartbreaking. It it just feels like no parent should ever have to say that. And before anybody comes for me, I'm not saying that because I think people who commit suicide or selfish or that they sh- that should never happen. I mean, I hope that it never happens, but I've just heard too many parents recount the stories of burying their children for lots of reasons. I mean, what we do mainly homicide is the reason, but they all wish it had been the other way around that they could have taken their child's place, you know, that they could have taken their child's pain away. And I've heard multiple stories and I actually have a guest who her brother just passed away. They think it was an overdose, but um, because he had overdosed in the past, his heart had been seriously affected. So it could have been maybe a heart attack or something like that. He was young, like 34-ish or so. Jeez, that's so sad. And he had passed away, and she said that the sound her mother made when she found out was the worst sound in the oh, world. I bet, because it's just like you, just as a parent, I don't know, you assume that you're going to be gone way before your kids are. Like... I just couldn't imagine having to do that. It's awful. Except for Casey Anthony. <laughs> here here it comes. Here it is. Here it comes. Yeah, because when I was typing that, I was like, every parent wants to take their... Oh, wait. Except for fucking Casey Anthony. <laughs> exactly. Fuck her. Yes. So now we meet Fairhaven police detectives Scott Gordon and Glenn Cudmore, I think. They said that when Conrad passed, he'd left suicide notes to his family and friends along with the passwords to his laptop and his phone. So the phone was dead, and they were unsure whether to even take it or not, but they ultimately decided to take the phone to see if they could come up with why Conrad had had taken his own life. And they were both just kind of like, we, we couldn't understand, like, why? Why would an 18-year-old do this? And I'm like, I'm so, have you not been 18? <laughs> like, especially with social media, I can't imagine the pressure. Like, it's definitely something that's that happens, mm-hmm. like... I'm glad they took the phone, but it was just interesting that they were just like, this was out of the realm of possibility. How could this have even happened? The text message thread that was already open was with Michelle Carter, and immediately they see that the messages are very disturbing. So through a lot of this documentary, we just see text message come up on the screen between Michelle and other people, or Conrad and other people, usually Conrad and Michelle, but... um, it's and it usually like when they come up, they make the little like boop yeah. noise, like whoop whoop. That's the whoop. only sound that you hear during that kind of. Yeah, so we can't play that for you, but we will read them for you. Do you want to be Conrad? Yeah. I'll be okay. Conrad. okay. Okay. You be Conrad. Okay. Michelle, are you gonna do it now? Conrad, I just don't know how to leave them. You know. Say you're going to the store or something. You're overthinking. I know I'm overthinking. I've been overthinking for a while now. I know, you just have to do it, like you said. Detective Gordon said it was constant encouragement from Michelle to take Conrad's life, almost demanding that he take his life. When, at this point in the documentary, I was like, that's a little, um, what's the right word, dramatic. Like, 
seriously, do you really think that it's demanding? I'm not seeing that. And then as we get further into it, I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, this is it's not looking good. Um, yeah, and well, I guess we'll get into it. But now they said they needed to find out who Michelle Carter was because they didn't they didn't know who she was. Like everybody they talked to, no, nobody brought her up. So we get a picture of Michelle at this moment and it's got to be the best photo she's ever taken. This is like before her eyebrows get really dark and and like big and I don't know. She gets she gets a little weird looking towards the trial, I feel like. It's just an unsettling look. It is. I, I think I honestly think that didn't help her mm-hmm. a little bit. Um so the detectives traveled to Rentham, Massachusetts to interview Michelle at her high school about Conrad's death. And the on-screen text tells us that this is the only on-record statement that Michelle has ever made about the case. Uh, Michelle, the reason why we came out here is we were looking into Conrad's unfortunate passing, all right? Yes. Um, did you have contact on him that day right up until he, he, he passed? Mm-hmm. Did you, do you think you had contact with him that day? Um, I think so. Yeah. Did he, did he tell you he was going to do that or anything like that? Um... He was talking about it for a while, yeah. and he told me that um, like no one would be able to help him. I was talking to him on the phone like the night before the 12th, and we were talking, and then like the phone like hung up, but I didn't, I didn't really think anything of it. I, just, I didn't really know what to do. I was just scared for him because I had a feeling that this would come up at some point. What? I, like, just what happened. Okay. Uh, is, that, is that your phone? Is that the phone you had? Yeah, it's my phone. It's kind of broken. Oh, it is? Oh, uh, well, like the screen. Is this password protected? Yeah. What's, you know the password? Um... Um, we have a search warrant for your phone. Okay. So we'll be taking it. Wait, so you're taking my phone? Yes. Do I get it back? At some point you will, yeah. Okay. Okay. That had to have been really difficult for her as a 17-year-old in high school to have police officers come and... Yeah, because they'd already had search warrants for her phone. Obviously, she wasn't expecting that, and she's like, uh... What do you mean you're taking my phone? Right. And like with no prior knowledge, I would not have known what to do at all in that situation. Yeah. And obviously she wasn't very truthful. Oh, right. And they knew already. And they already knew. Yeah. So that doesn't help you. Mm -mm. But I think we can chalk that part up to, I don't think she was trying to, well, I, I think she was trying to hide it, but I don't think she was trying to hide it necessarily for nefarious reasons. I think it was just like, maybe it's just better if I don't tell them that I talked to him that day or that I was on the phone with him when it happened, like just say that I talked to him and I wasn't sure what happened kind of thing. Right. The police said that they downloaded about 60,000 items from her phone and they each grabbed a copy of the, I guess, extraction file, went home and read it every night, about 1,000 messages per night, they said they did. And at one point they look at each other and they say, well, if it's not for her, he's alive today. So they decide to take the case to the grand jury, who returns an indictment for involuntary manslaughter on February 5th, 2015. Michelle is booked, and she's released on bail, and we get some media coverage of the case as things are ramping up for the trial. We get Nancy Grace talking about it. Good God, Nancy Grace. The puss on her face. I hate it. I could not even. That was like, I mean, she had a look on her face, but. I mean, I think that it's just. Good timing on the photographer's part because... Yeah, well, the media is going to be there through every hearing, right? And so here's the thing. You're damned if you do and damned if you don't because attorneys will tell you or probably try to tell you, don't show emotion, right? Don't show a lot of emotion because people are will misconstrue it. So for somebody like Jesse Miss Kelly in the West Memphis Three, they told him not to show emotion. They told him to look down the whole time. Well, then people perceive that as he's guilty. He didn't even look up, right? He's got some mental struggles. He's got an attorney telling him to look down. And now they 
determine that he's he's guilty because of that. He doesn't care. He won't even look up. That's not what it was. He was told not to. And then if she shows any emotion or whatever, somebody's going to capture it. And yeah. it could have been something that somebody said and and she was just like, "What? That's not true." And maybe that was her face for it. The smirk or whatever. Yeah. The, yeah. I mean, you can time something perfectly to where if you're looking up with your eyes, it looks like you're rolling your eyes or, you mm-hmm. know, like there's yeah. all kinds of things that can happen. Yeah. And she could have been making a just shit look, but I, I'm not sure that it was like, <laughs> fuck this. Like, right. I, I think she was pretty scared. I don't think that it was, it had anything to do with that. I think she just forgot to keep hold of her facial expressions. I don't know that I'd do well with that. I would 100% not do well with that. Everything that I'm thinking is all over my face all the time. Yeah. Our friend Amy um, in our wedding pictures when I was going through them, (laughs) I don't know who she was looking at because it's like she's just like the last thing in in the view of the camera, I guess. But she's given somebody like the stankest look and it's one of my favorite pictures from our wedding because I'm like, who pissed Amy off? It's so funny. But like, you know, shit happens. I don't know. Whatever. So they talked to Conrad's family and they're absolutely shocked. They had no idea about these text messages. They had no idea that she was encouraging his suicide. Um, As far as I got from especially Lynn, they didn't even know that he was struggling with the possibility of suicide at all. Yeah, I mean, that's what she said. But then the dad also went through, like, all the doctors and psychiatrists they took him to, which we'll get into. But I wasn't sure about that. I want to see part two when they talk about the defense as well, because I, I I don't know. She kept saying she had no idea and not to blame her in any way at all. But maybe she just didn't know the extent. Like, maybe she knew yeah, or the, maybe, about the, the depression. And yeah, because... Because Co also did say that they thought it was getting better. Like, he thought he was back on the right path. So maybe that's what she meant, that, like, she didn't realize he'd gone back to that. Um, I would have liked to know a little bit more about that, I think, just to, so that I could fully understand it. But then we go back to June 2014. So this is a month before Conrad's death. And we see a video made by Conrad, and he's talking about his struggles with social anxiety. Hi, this is Conrad Roy. And I'm going to talk to you about social anxiety. For me, social anxiety feels like it's overwhelming my life. Like everything does not revolve around me. And now I want to take steps to control it. And the first thing I want to do is be more proactive in a social environment try to contribute to a conversation as well as I can. And just be more confident in myself and my ability to retract my knowledge because I, I feel like I'm a smart man. I'm 18 years old and I still haven't recovered from social anxiety, depression. It's controlling me. A lot of people tell me that I have a lot going for me. I have to be happy. I have to be happy. Well, no, you don't have to be happy. There's people that love me. I have a great mom. Great dad, for the most part. But I'm still depressed. I feel like I'm differently wired from everyone else. Like, there's something wrong with me. The serotonin in my head is gone. And you replace it with dopamine or another controlled substance. But if I keep talking, keep talking, it's going to get better. So this kind of makes it sound like he is on the up and up, right? He's like, hopeful at the very least. Yeah, he's like, it's going to get better if I just keep, if I keep talking, if I keep putting myself in social situations, maybe I'll overcome this kind of thing. We then meet Conrad Sr., Conrad's grandfather, and he's talking about his memories with Conrad, and he gets pretty emotional as well. I mean, these people are, they're so torn up about it. It's so sad. And this is a family, they said, that works in the water. His dad says they play in the water. Co says that Conrad always enjoyed being on boats, and once he got into high school, he worked with him as well. I think the whole family business was 
you know, boat stuff. I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not a boat person really. Um, Lynn said that things got more difficult for Conrad though, when she and Co got divorced and, you know, she says, of course, all kids ultimately like want their parents to be together and, and that kind of thing. And he definitely struggled with it. And Co said that his grades started slipping and he started having trouble staying focused. He was, he said he had racing thoughts and he was having memory trouble. So they took him to all these different doctors and psychiatrists to figure out what was happening. And his dad breaks down recounting how difficult it was to watch Conrad basically wither away into somebody who he said didn't even know who to sit with at school. He said it's just heartbreaking as a parent. And he said that kids would pick on Conrad and all these things. It was just, it was a really, really difficult time for him. And Lynn says that she wishes she would have seen more, that she wishes she wishes she would have picked up on more signs that day, that week, you know, all these things. And I'm thinking like, what else can you do, you know, like other than monitor your kid's phone 24-7, find out who they're talking to and what they're talking about. I mean, ideally, I guess you'd have some pulse on that, but... Well, and you would hope that whoever your kid is talking to, especially if it's something as sensitive and as serious as suicide, that that friend would be like, this is something that we need to talk to your parents about or exactly, reach out Exactly, exactly. And when, when we go through especially like testimony and all of these kids that know that this is happening and not one of them says, let me find an adult. Mm -hmm. Let me tell my mom. Like, I don't know. I don't know if it's just happens to be a group of kids who don't talk to their parents. Like, I mean, I think that's a thing that as parents, we have to try to, to do is to maintain relationships with our kids that are open communication so that they do want to talk to us. Like, I know that that's got to be really tough to, to do and to manage, but do none of these kids talk to their parents? Like, it's just really weird that none of them at any point were like, you know what? A, a lot of people are talking about suicide and cutting and, you know, all these things. Like, maybe I should tell somebody. Like, mm -hmm. maybe they need help. I, I'm a little confused why none of that ever happened. Right. Um, both Lynn and Co. say they thought it was getting better and that Conrad was on the right track. And the interviewer just point blank asked Co. what caused Conrad's death. And his reply is, I would say it's Michelle Carter. So here's where we get some text messages that are just, I mean, it went from that to this message and it was jarring. Michelle says, drink bleach. Why don't you just drink bleach? Hang yourself, jump off a building, stab yourself. I don't know. There's a ton of ways. I'm like, what? Good God. Yeah. That's where, and it's no surprise, I'm sure, where I was like, well, yeah, she is really, really demanding him to kill himself. Like, yeah, she's like, there's so many options. What's the problem here? Like, yeah. could you imagine getting a text message from somebody that said drink bleach? I'd be like, oh my God, you hate me. Right. Exactly. It, I, I just seeing that on the screen, I was just like, oh my God. Yeah. Not expecting Drink that. bleach. This is where we find out how Michelle and Conrad met, and it's kind of like a freak, I don't know, almost accident, I guess I would say. They only live an hour away from each other, but they happen to meet in Florida on vacation. So Michelle's family and Conrad's family both had vacation homes in the same area, and they were introduced by Conrad's aunt. And they hit it off, they rode bikes to the beach, and Michelle says that's when she fell for him. And we hear about this modern romance conducted almost entirely online, but destructive to their mental health. Joseph Cataldo, Michelle's attorney, says that while her behavior might not have been the right thing to do, it was not criminal. He says there's no law that criminalizes encouragement of suicide in Massachusetts, and although there's no law against it, they're going to prosecute her with homicide anyway. He says that the idea that your words alone can constitute a charge of manslaughter is a dangerous precedent. So... Then we get to sit in on the court hearing to determine whether there's enough probable cause to go to trial with this. And the attorneys are talking to the judges and they're like, look, she may have made a bitch move and told him to get back in the truck when he wanted to get out of the truck. But he, she wasn't there. She didn't push him into the truck. She didn't say, get back in the truck or I'm going to put you in the truck. Get back in the truck or I'm going to push you off a bridge, you know, like... He's like, 
he could have, he was just on the phone. He could have hung up the phone right. if he wanted. He could have blocked her call. He could have. Yeah, he could have, he could have said, fuck you and deleted her phone number. Like, whatever he wanted to do. And there's this male judge that is like, no way. Like, yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, okay, so, all right, I'm going to kill myself and I'm in the truck and I have to get out. I'm, I'm going to get out. I call my friend and she says, you get back in the truck. So that's just fine then. That's fine. That's just words. Is that what we're going to say here? It's just words. He's he's not fucking having it. I love how, like, it's almost, he's so sassy about he's it. He's very sassy. He's just like, listen, there has to be, there has to be something here. Because he, what he says is that that voluntary manslaughter is, causing someone's death with wanton and reckless conduct. And he's saying that that can include your words and her saying things like drink bleach, do it now. When are you going to do it? You need to hurry up and do it. You keep saying you're going to do it, but you haven't done it yet. Why haven't you done it it yet? Yeah. Get it over with. Of course it's going to be hard. I mean, you're going to die. That's, that's scary. That's normal, but just do it. Like he's saying, this is, this is the, the definition of wanton and reckless conduct in verbal form. So he feels like it needs to be included. And the attorney says, well, no, because when the judge is like, okay, so you're just going to be like, okay, well, that's just words then. And that's just the, the that's not a problem then. Uh, he's oh, like, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. All right. Is that what we're going right. to Okay. 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 He's like, um, no, yeah, I don't think that's a problem because she did not commit a crime. It was not a crime to encourage suicide in Massachusetts at the time that this happened. And we can't retroactively make it a crime. So he's like, I mean, he's all in. He believes this, that she didn't do anything criminal. Whether or not she did something wrong is different, but it was not criminal. And her attorney is kind of bold because if it was me up there and I was arguing and that guy was like, oh, okay, okay, okay. And then just like, oh, what about this? I'd be like, you're absolutely right. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh my God. You make a really good point. I'm I'm so sorry. I it your way now. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I know. I would not. I don't think I'd be a good attorney. But her her attorney says that this is a case that's going to set precedent because this is going to affect the ability to, here's, I didn't understand this, to openly discuss suicide and encourage it among loved ones. I'm like, whatever your view is on it, I don't think anybody's sitting here saying you should be able to openly encourage people who want to kill themselves. Like, people should be able to discuss it. But then those people need to help, like, help them get help, not help them pick out the knife or whatever. Or the manner in which you're going to act it out. Yeah. Like, okay, well, you need help figuring it out. Let me Google it and give you the top 12 ways and how you could do it. Like, Well, and she was super, even down to, like, didn't want to help him figure out a way to commit suicide that was, she wanted a painless approach to it. Which is, I mean, I would too, but... It's obviously, it's not just this like kind of random conversation where it's like, oh, you're planning on doing this? Like, that's crazy. It's like, here, let me do some research on this. Let me figure out, let me help you out in this way. I mean, it's like Bubba Gump listing all the different types of shrimp. Exactly. (laughs) Shrimp stew. It's just like, she's like, I got, I got options for days. Like, that's not helpful. Not helpful. The court decision uses phrases like, campaign of coercion subvert his willpower virtual presence they're saying that the moment when conrad got out of the truck and michelle told him to get back in is what the whole case is likely going to hinge on they say we are not convinced and the supreme judicial court upholds the indictment so on june 5th 2017 michelle carter faces trial for manslaughter now we talk to jesse barron who covered the case for Esquire magazine, and he says that he went to a pretrial hearing and Michelle was thin, blonde, and, oops, blonde, and tanning booth tan, like, she knew she was going to be photographed. I'm like, well, duh. Mm-hmm. Aren't they all, like, look nice, look presentable? Yeah, look like, look your best. Yeah. yeah. So, of course, she's going to have her hair done. I don't know who parted her hair. Mm-hmm. Did you notice the, like, fuzzy thing on the side? It was just... Well, that's like crazy. baby hairs or she's got curly, curly hair and she just didn't get close enough to the scalp with a flat yeah, iron or something. It was, it was very, it was like way out there and... And I'm sorry, but you can, you can do whatever you want to to your hair, but as a hairstylist, this is 2015, like... 17. Oh, 2017, excuse me, yeah. 
we've got so many tools in our tool belts to combat that. It's just personally offensive to me. Sure. Why you sure. got stick straight hair and then this curly wavy stuff. It's it was almost like a nest yes. on that side. It was just very like it was fluffier than hell. Somebody brushed that shit. So yeah, I'm like I mean he he's talking about it like she was doing it for the attention almost. I'm like, well, of course she's going to like dress up. You know, she's going to wear high heels. She's going well, to try to look her best. Here we go again. If she had worn something, you know, demure and or like a paper bag or whatever, people would have been like, well, it kind of seemed like she didn't even give a shit about this. Like, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's they're they're going to try to make you look a certain way. I mean, they were able to make Casey Anthony look like a fucking school marm. Do you imagine see? Imagine how surprised everyone is that you brought up Casey Anthony again. Amazing. I'm not with her this week. She's really working my fucking nerves this week. <laughs> she All she's is. doing is existing. And exactly. Like it's pissing me off. <laughs> Michelle looks almost sickly thin here. And I mean, we, we hinted a little bit earlier. She, I mean, stress can make you lose weight too. So, I mean, there's definitely some things that she's dealing with too. So there's, I think at this point, even though it's called the prosecution, we do start to see a little bit of that, that other kind of creeping in like, hey, there might be some mitigating factors here kind of thing. Michelle is now 20 years old and she's being tried in juvenile court, which I was a little surprised about because I feel like a lot of times they just try to go for adult court now. I mean, they've tried 14 year olds as adults. Exactly. She is giving up the right to a jury trial and has elected to try her luck with the judge in this case. Which I think was smart. I think it was very smart. And the reporter they talked to says, you know, a jury of your peers, they don't know the law usually, but they know their emotions. And then a lot of times emotions win the day with convictions. And we've seen that so many times. Time and time again. And it can go both ways. Like the defense can sway people because... Maybe juries don't really understand how to correctly apply the law. And the Are you same... Gonna, is it kind of similar to... Ooh, what was her name? Casey Anthony? <laughs> that bitch. <laughs> and then, you know, sometimes the prosecution does it. And, I mean, there's all kinds of things, you know, how people... A lot of people, first of all, still assume that if you're, if you're charged, then you're guilty. There's, there's just so many things like that. So it's, I, yes, I thought it was brilliant. Like go for the judge, especially because this case, their whole defense is this is not an actual law on the book. So you can't actually charge her with it. So the law doesn't even matter because it's not even a law. So buy, like throw it out. But the jury just sees her pushing him to hurry up and commit the suicide well, and they're like, that is unethical. That is just immoral. That's wrong. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I honestly think that it probably would have been a good decision to do that in the Justin Ross Harris case because I think that, and actually a lot of people in the group think that he did it on purpose. So, I mean, there's a lot of different views out there, but as far as the law goes, because I think the emotion with what a piece of fucking scum he is, which he is kind of outruled the evidence as to whether or not he intentionally murdered his son. So I think with a judge trial, you're putting all your eggs in one basket. You know, you don't get the benefit of as many people being able to weigh in and maybe bring different perspectives to it. But you also remove so much emotion, you would think, because they should be looking at it through the lens of just the law and how it applies. Well, that's like Aristotle said, the law is reason free from passion. Wow. You, uh, legally blonde, you're welcome. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but it's true. It is true. It is true. So, yeah, the jury doesn't give a fuck about the law <laughs> that's in place, I don't think, because when you're emotionally charged, you want to see somebody get punished for this, especially if they think it's wrong. And what she did was wrong. So, I mean, I can see, I can see both ways and I can see why that was, would have been a really smart move. Michelle is from Plainville, Massachusetts, a town of about 8,000. I bet you're pronouncing that one wrong too. I probably am. I know some people say Massachusetts. Is what that just a Massachusetts? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh -oh. that was always a fun one in school. 
We're gonna get I'm not cussing. I'm just saying it. Hate mail on that. I wasn't, I'm not calling out Massachusetts. I'm just <laughs> saying it's just fun to like, oh no, I'm just saying the state's name. I'm not cussing in school. Yeah, and that's just how, that's, that's just pronounced. What, is, is that, that how it's am pronounced? Am I wrong? So everybody says she's polite. She's a good student. She respected her elders. The clinical psychiatrist hired by the defense, Dr. Peter Bregan, says that she was known as sweet and caring in her community. She even won the superlative in high school for most likely to brighten your day. I would not want her to be my life coach. I'll say that right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess Conrad would have been the only person she was saying any of this kind of stuff to, but... But still, one is enough. One's enough, yeah. Yeah. So he says that upon reading her text, he entered another world of Michelle that he didn't know about. All right, if you thought some of those texts before were weird, buckle up. It's about to get real weird. So Michelle texts Camden, which is Conrad's sister, an hour after his death. Hey, Camden, it's Michelle Carter. I don't know if you remember me, but I'm dating your brother again. Ha ha. She puts ha ha at the end of like everything. Does your mom know where he is? On the stand, Camden's voice is shaking, recounting these messages. And she said that Michelle texted her again, find him yet? And she replied, no. Michelle says, okay, just stay positive. Let me know. Now, these messages are on July the 13th. And at this point, Michelle is well aware that Conrad has committed suicide. She has already told him to get back in the truck when he got out. And she sat on the phone for 20 more minutes until the phone went dead after he got back in. So... She's texting them, acting like, hey, I don't know where he is. Have you heard from him? Like, what's going on with that? Yeah, she's just, like, perpetuating the charade. Yeah, very strange. On the 14th, Michelle says, hey, love, please talk to me if you need to. I want to do everything I can to help you and your family through this very difficult time. Is there any way I could come over tomorrow? The prosecutor asked Camden if Michelle had ever been to her house before this exchange, and Camden says that she's not aware that she had ever been to her house, so... They're trying to point out that this is a little weird. Like, you wouldn't normally come over, and now you're trying to push this relationship kind of thing. Michelle is also texting Lynn during this time, and Lynn believed that Michelle was trying to help Conrad and told her that she was actually glad that Conrad had someone like her in his life. She's texting things to Lynn, like, I'm looking forward, well, maybe not to Lynn, but she's texting things to the family, like, I'm looking forward to seeing you and your family. Are you going to say anything at the funeral? Is it going to be a closed casket? Like, what the fuck? It's just so insensitive. These are people that are about to bury their son, their brother, and you're saying, asking, like, technical questions about the, it's not like you're all going to the bar Friday and you're like, hey, girl, are you going to wear a skirt or, like, pants? Exactly, but that's how she's treating it. Yeah, it's really weird. Camden tells her that he's been cremated and they're going to spread his ashes in the ocean at the grandparents' house. And Michelle's response is, Mm -mm. those are perfect and beautiful places to spread his ashes. I know you probably don't want me to, but am I allowed to have some or no? I completely understand if you don't want me to. That is such an outrageous request. Like, what the actual fuck? Mm-hmm. Can I have some of his ashes? Like, I don't even know in what, I don't, I can't think of any situation where asking that would be appropriate. No. Ever. And again, she's asking it like she's asked, like, are you going to finish that? Like, yeah. Yeah. Do you, way- do you want to keep all of those ashes though? Yeah. Like you were not, I understand that they were, they were in a relationship and she believes she was in love and all these things, but I don't know. That's just very, it's very strange. She texted Lynn that they both tried their hardest to save him. And Lynn goes, what the fuck is she talking about? I had no idea he was feeling this way. And I mean, we talked about that a little bit earlier, but Michelle kind of keeps saying like, I know you tried your hardest and I tried my hardest to save him. Like we did everything that we could. And Lynn's like, I didn't know we were having to try our hardest to keep him alive. Yeah, exactly. She's like, what do you mean? Like, I think at that point she's like, okay, if you're trying your hardest, to keep him alive, somebody should have told me. Somebody should have told somebody, you know? Definitely. This isn't stuff that needs to just stay between two 18-year-olds or whatever. And Lynn said that she'd warned Conrad's about girls being kind of manipulative, kind of like, you know, how they bat their eyes and, like, get what they want and, you know, whatever this says about me. It immediately reminded me of Bottoms Up when Nicki Minaj is like, uh, yeah, Trey, <laughs> like, <laughs> you could buy me a bottle. Yes. Yeah. 
Exactly. Like, you know, she's being all like hardcore and then she's like, um, oh, oh, could you get me a bottle of rosé? Like, <laughs> just, you know, playing the game, doing what she needs to do to get her bottle of rosé. Some people, that's, you, you play that and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but. Sometimes I, you just walk up to the bar and say, give me two on Richardson. <laughs> that, that works. 90% of the time, it works 100% of the time. <laughs> What's that saying? I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, it worked every time I did it. So, it's rude to do that. Well, yeah. You should not do that. Make your friend's boyfriend pay for all of your drinks. He was a douchebag. Well, yeah. I like him about as much as I like Casey Anthony. Ooh, strong words. Yep. So, then we hear from the prosecution that Michelle was extremely needy. She did not have close friends. She would text the girls at school incessantly and try to get close to them, but they didn't really hang out with her very much. They call Sam Boardman, a girl that Michelle knew in school, and they're asking Sam, like, how did you know Michelle? Did you go to school with her? Like, did you have classes with her? And she can't even really remember, like, which classes they had together or, you know, how many. And I get it at this point, it's a couple of years later, but it's like the worst feeling to be like, oh my God, hey, you're in my math class. Like when you're in school and they're like, oh, really? Am I? Like, yeah, you're forgettable. I couldn't like, remember yeah, you Yeah, you sit in front of me and we talk every day for a whole year. Like, oh, that, that was you? Yeah. I don't, I don't remember that at all. Mm -mm. Weird. So I, I kind of think that's where Michelle was with the girls in her class or in her school. Like she viewed them as close friends and they all referred to her as like, yeah, I talked to her in school, but yeah. like she's that's my it. classmate. Yeah. She's my yeah. She's my teammate. So there's a girl, Olivia Masolgo. I'm not sure how to say her name. I think she's on a soccer team. I can't tell what kind of team it is. I'm guessing soccer. I don't know. And Michelle referred to her as or Olivia referred to Michelle as a close teammate. Well, I wonder because they're in DECA, right? Yes, they are in DECA. Could that be a DECA teammate? Like could they have like teams on Mm, well, yeah, you can compete in DECA. I had a teammate. We went to nationals twice. Mm -hmm. But um, they showed actual, like, like a sports team photo, too, at one point. a softball team as well. Oh, was it softball? Could okay. Be. So maybe that was softball. But this girl just referred to her as a teammate. And so the prosecutor is like, well, not a friend then. And she's like, no, I mean, I guess like a teammate. So she's... She's keeping it separate. Like, I'll talk to Michelle at practice or I'll talk to Michelle at a game, but I'm not going to invite her over after kind of thing. And Michelle texted her at one point and said, Livy, I have like no friends. Next is Lexi Eblin, who describes her relationship with Michelle as an in-school friendship. She said Michelle asked her to hang out at least a couple times a week. Oh, wow. And her normal response was, you know, I'm working, I've got something else to do, or just no. So... She really tried to not hang out with her, essentially. Wow. And Lexi was asked if she had plans to hang out with Michelle over the summer. And the way that the prosecutor asked it was, in your mind, did you have plans to hang out with her over the summer? And Lexi's like, no, not really. And it kind of seemed like what they were saying was that at that point, Michelle thought that maybe there was something that was going to happen that summer. And in Lexi's mind, they had not agreed to anything, but that was something that Michelle had held on to. Like, okay, we'll see each other at some point this summer kind of thing. Then we're brought back to July the 10th, 2014. So this is two days before Conrad's death. And Michelle is texting Sam Boardman, who we talked about, one of the girls from her school. And she says he's missing, like they don't know where he is. And Sam says, Conrad? And Michelle says, yeah. I texted his mom because I was getting really worried. Like, he always texts me in the morning, and he didn't, and he stopped answering last night. Sam says, he probably would have told you if he wasn't planning on coming back, you know? Don't worry yet. So the prosecution calls this Michelle's dry run to see if this method would get her the attention of the girls at school. During this time, she's texting the girls. She's also texting Conrad. Like, she knows full well he's not missing. She knows full well he's he's there. He's, he's okay. And she's texting him. Okay. Are you going to buy it? Referring to the gas machine. And he says, I think so. And she says, okay, when the girls are texting her worried for her and she's still maintaining that Conrad is missing. Michelle says, it's all my fault. I was supposed to save him. He needed me. I let him down. Sam says, don't blame yourself for anything. Clearly he needs help for an issue that you have no control over. 
The prosecution says now that she knows it's going to work, she's got to make it happen. She doesn't want to be found out as a liar, like a George Glass situation. <laughs> she's Or she's, you know, made, either that she's made up Conrad, she's made up the difficulties he's having, his, his suicidal thoughts, any of that kind of thing. Or she fears that that attention that she's getting is going to go away if he stays alive. If, if he turns up all fine and well, then they're going to be like, well, he was fine. And then if later she brings it up again, they'll say, well, he was fine last time. Like it's probably a false alarm kind of thing. I think the prosecution is saying that she thinks this is her in and it's got to be now and he can't stay alive for it to happen. Michelle on July 12th, 2014 to Sam, Sam, he just called me and there was a loud noise like a motor and I heard moaning like someone was in pain and he wouldn't answer when I said his name. I stayed on the phone like 20 minutes and that's all I heard. I think he just killed himself. Then on July 13th, she texts Sam to see if they can hang out to get her mind off of Conrad's suicide. Again, she doesn't tell anybody, an adult. She doesn't call his mom and say, oh my God, I was on the phone with him and I think this just happened. You need to go find him. She doesn't call the police. She doesn't call the police. She doesn't call anybody. So I'm mind boggled by this. And, and Sam gets this text message and I mean, I get if you don't know who to call, but tell your parents like, Hey mom, dad, my friend just texted me and said, she's pretty sure her boyfriend committed suicide. What do we do? Right. And they'll call the police. They'll call somebody like, I just don't understand being like, well, see you tomorrow. Like, yeah, exactly. What the fuck? Then Michelle takes to Facebook posting frequently about Conrad and how much she missed him. The prosecution is pulling this out, like, showing that obviously she's trying to get attention. I think that could go either way. If she genuinely did just miss him, I think Facebook's probably where you would put a lot of that. Like, I think social media is where it's going to go mm-hmm. these days. Like, you're going to be posting about it. People who are super public on social media. So, I don't know. I don't think that necessarily says one thing or another. She texted Olivia that Conrad had died, and Olivia was like, oh my gosh, I'll be right there. The prosecutor asked if she would normally go to see Michelle, and Olivia says no, that she did on this day because she would want to be with somebody if something like that happened to her. And then we hear about homers for Conrad, and it doesn't get, it doesn't look better for her. Mm -mm. So Michelle says, hey, I put homers for Conrad on Facebook. I'm like famous now, haha, check it out. Michelle decided to host this tournament to benefit mental health awareness, but she planned to host it in Plainville. Conrad's best friend, Tom, said he couldn't understand why it wasn't in Conrad's hometown. And he texted Michelle that he thought it'd be better to have it where Conrad's friends and family are located. And her response is that she didn't know how to organize it in a town that she didn't know anybody in. She could have co-hosted it with somebody who lived there. She obviously had all of their phone numbers, like his family. She's got Tom's phone number, obviously. Like, could she not have ask them, hey, where should we have it? Do you have a location I could call? Like, anything. I think I think that could have happened very easily, but she made it clear that this was her event. Yeah, it was her show. She did not show. want to share any of the glory with anybody else. Yeah. And Michelle even says to him, like, this was my idea. I created it to be here. Ha ha. You're not taking credit for my idea, right? LOL. I'm like, what the fuck? And you're, Tom, you're losing sight of what this is about. Oh, well, yeah, exactly. And that's, I mean, I can see the prosecution's point here. Michelle seems to be basking in the glory of being the grieving girlfriend. And that's the term they use a lot. She needs to be the grieving girlfriend. She needs to get all this attention. I mean, that's like munchausen Z. Like, that's using somebody else's misfortune to get attention on yourself. And Tom's like, look, I had no problem with her being the one who got all the credit for this event. Like, I just didn't understand why it couldn't be in our town where we all were. Like, she's the only person in this town, but she wouldn't have gotten as much attention if it had been in our town because not as many people would have known her. So she needed it to be where, like, her friends and family were, where they could kind of fawn all over her is what they're thinking. And he said that he did attend it, um, even though it was in Plainville. And he said she seemed really happy at the event. She's smiling in all the photos from the event. And the prosecution says that now she's got the attention that she's been wanting. And 
Jesse Barron at this point says that the narrative that emerged immediately after the indictment of Michelle was of like a heartless bitch that killed a guy to get popular. He said that this basically combined all the things that people hate about teenage girls. And I was like, oh my God, there's a lot of things. Like, Everyone hate hates teenage girls. And I think that they lump us in the teenage girls category. <laughs> yes, they do. A lot of people think we're teenage girls. He said, here are the things that people hate about teenage girls in no particular order. They're vapid. They crave attention. They're manipulative. They have a secret power that men don't have and they can use it. And basically it's like jawbreaker in real life. It's all to get popular. It's all to get noticed. They don't have any... It's like we're robots that just need attention. And also, mm-hmm. we're really stupid. Yeah. I killed Liz. I killed the teen dream. <laughs> Deal with it. Exactly. Like, that's it. And I was like, okay, ouch. That only happened... That was only one time. That was only one time. Like, I don't know. I was... I was... I'm still emotional. <laughs> I just... I don't know. God, I can't. I am emotional knapsack. Yeah, I'm glad that I have boys. I think because I won't have to deal with like my attitude made over. I don't but. know if that's accurate though, because your boys are sassy. They got some tudes. They sure do. So I don't know. I was just like, really? What? Are teenage girls that bad? I don't know. Jesse says that this narrative came more from us than her. And Dr. Bregan says that men are basically terrified of women. And I was like, you're damn right. (laughs) Whatever. Um, You know, what with the history of witches and stuff in our culture. And he says, we vilified women in many roles throughout history. And men fear that women can control them. And they're, you know, in talking to Jesse and Dr. Bregan, it kind of seems like they're warning us not to judge a book by its cover. It seems like they're starting to lay the groundwork for some of the defense points, I think. We start to see some of Michelle's Twitter profile, and she's saying things like, all-time low, didn't think it could get much worse, my best is just not good enough. And now we're told that she had a severe eating disorder. She had serious mental health issues of her own. She was very lonely. Dr. Bregan says that an eating disorder can make you feel super isolated, and you become more isolated so that people don't find out about it. Another post says, I totally understand how batteries feel because I'm rarely ever included in things either. That's really sad. That is super sad. It's like, that's really sad. I don't know. And it doesn't sound just being dramatic to me because no, she reached out to so many girls in her school and they were like, "Mm -mm, no, thanks. Yeah. Flat out. No. Yeah, exactly. Just like, no, I don't want to hang out with you. And, and that's hard too, because like Dr. Bregan says later, but I'll go ahead and talk about it now, that she's so desperate and she's so needy and she pushes and pushes and pushes and pushes. And it's like, it's not like, hey girl, do you want to get together this weekend? It's like, can I come over today? Can I come over tomorrow? Can I come over Wednesday then? Can I come over Thursday? Like I could come over in the morning. Do you want me to come over at night? Do you want me to come over in the afternoon? Like it's so much that people tend to run away from that and they can feel her desperation. And he says that it's just a hole that nobody can fill. Like she needs so much that even if they did hang out with her once that week, it wouldn't be enough. She'd want to talk all the time. She'd want to talk every day. And it's like, it just becomes too much to take on. So I think on one hand, these girls kind of look like mean girls a little bit, like She's not my favorite person, so I wouldn't hang out with her. But I think if you put yourself in that situation, too, it's like, you know. Well, I mean, it's it's very, if you give a mouse a cookie, but it's also leading her on, maybe, in a way. Because, like you said, mm. if you did hang out with her just the one time, like, okay, I want to be nice. Well, then you're locked in, in her eyes. We're right. going to do this every time. We're going to do this all the time. Yeah. And, and they didn't, I mean, they just... They honestly, unfortunately, they didn't want to be around her. Like, I've never been in that kind of a situation where it's been like an incessant thing, you know? So I I don't know. I don't know how to properly deal with that, you know? Because I know you want to be nice to people. And there are some people who just don't give a shit. But you want to be nice to people. You want to include people and things like that. But at the same time, it's like... I mean, you don't want to hang out with somebody every single day that you don't enjoy hanging out with. Like, Well, yeah, and if you say no the first few times, that's nice, and then it just keeps on and keeps on and keeps on, and if it's super incessant, I have a tendency to kind of break and have, you know, okay, no, no, I don't want to do, yeah. you know, like you then you 
can't deal with it anymore and yeah. you just react. Yeah. And and maybe they would ignore, you know, a lot of those requests and just be like, I'm just not even going to get back to it. Like, I don't know. Then we find out that she had started cutting herself and Dr. Bregan says that isolates her even more because that way her parents and her doctors and, you know, anybody around her don't, don't know about the cutting. Michelle texts Sam, I think I'm having a mental breakdown. And Sam says, what's wrong? Michelle. So like she says what's wrong. And then another message, she's like, Michelle, because Michelle hasn't answered back. Michelle says, I don't even know what I'm feeling. Sam said, what is it about? Have you hurt yourself today? Michelle, you can talk to me. Michelle, I was doing okay. And then I had pasta for dinner and I completely lost it. I got so much anxiety. I didn't know what else to do. I'm so stupid. I'm so fucking stupid. I just need to get that knife out of my house. Sam said that Michelle would text her repeatedly until she responded, and that happened very often. I mean, here, obviously, Sam knows that she does cut herself because she asked her that question. Yes, did you hurt yourself today? Have you hurt yourself today? Like, that tells me that she knows it's frequent enough that it's not like, has it happened again? It's, did it happen today? Mm -hmm. You know, not like it was a one-time thing and maybe did it happen again. So, again, it's just very sad that nobody told adults about any of this I mean imagine the trajectory change if she'd gotten help then maybe I don't know maybe Conrad would still be here if he had gotten some help you know maybe he would it's just there could have been so many different outcomes here Michelle says in a text yeah I have school friends that all say they love me but that doesn't mean shit when no one ever asked to hang out with me no one ever calls me or texts me it's always me that has to do it so when someone actually makes an effort to talk to me and hang out and stuff, it makes me feel so happy and I actually feel important like I'm worth something. She said that Sam made her feel that way and she would look back on high school and be happy that she got the opportunity to be friends with Sam Boardman. That's just so sad. Like, and if you're Sam receiving that, you're like, fuck, mm -hmm. you know, like I was just trying to just have a conversation, you know, like, yeah, it's like a, I don't know. It's almost like Michelle's putting them on this like pedestal and they're like, I'm, I'm not that great. And, and I think it, I think they've maybe felt a hard time living up to some of that. I don't know. Maybe they were just bitches. I don't know. Well, I can say if it, if it had been me and I, I feel confident in saying this, that if I was like Sam, and I got all of those text messages that would make me want to be like, oh, I got to get out of this situation because it's just too much. Like yeah. the that reaction or those text messages or those feelings don't they're not correctly. Um, what's the right word? Like they don't measure up to what has actually happened. Like they're not within the realm of reality you know like she's, oh yeah, yeah, yeah it's like a way bigger reaction than was warranted right yeah for sure um michelle says that she pushes people away by texting and talking too much and then they leave and she says every single one and then i'm left crying in bed at night because i have no one no friends barely a family like they don't even like me half the time then we see some exchanges between michelle and lexi she says lexi do you hate me now Lexi, oh my God, stop being so dramatic. I don't hate you. I could care less about what you said to me. Michelle, will you never talk to me anymore and you're always mean to me? Lexi, I don't know what to tell you. Michelle, are we friends? Lexi, yeah. Michelle, can we talk more? Lexi, you're always awkward around me. And Michelle says, I'm sorry for everything, Lexi. I'll be less awkward and not do stuff to piss you off anymore. Ha ha. And... Dr. Bregan said that this is not an unusual phenomenon among young girls, that they, he said, this was so sad to me. He said, girls in high school destroy each other. Like, that's terrifying. And it's sad. Like, we live in a society where as we become adults, we see, we start to see that. And we start to see that we need to build each other up. And we're so vulnerable. We're vulnerable all the time, I think. But in high school, we're so vulnerable. And instead of building each other up and helping each other out, we are destroying each other. We're trying to figure out how we can be prettier or more popular or whatever. And it's it's like, why can't you just like 
extend your hand, you know? I don't know. It's just, it's really sad. It is really sad. And that's, that's also like for us, that was just in person. Now you've got online to deal with. Mm -hmm. I cannot imagine that pressure. No. At all. Then they play a video from Michelle's graduation and the applause is so loud as the person who graduated in front of her is kind of like walking off the stage and then they announce her name, Michelle Diana Carter, and pretty much all the applause stops and one lone person, probably her mom or whatever, in the audience is like, you know, way to go, Michelle, or whatever. And the look on her face is just like, well, I fucking knew it. Like, it's like, can not, can everybody not just fucking clap every time? Right. Just clap. Like, nothing. She got nothing. I mean, it went silent. Like, she looked extinguished. It was, it was sad. so sad. Michelle's attorney says at this point, the focus became Michelle and not Conrad. It was all about her involvement rather than asking the question, did Conrad really want to die? And the on-screen text tells us that Michelle's attorneys filed a motion for a required finding of not guilty after the prosecution rested their case. And Cataldo asked the judge to go through Conrad's Google searches. And he starts reading them off. Committing suicide makes you happy. Wishing you never existed. Fuck everything. He says there's hundreds of these searches. He said that Conrad Roy had a long-standing plan to commit suicide and that he would have done so with or without Michelle's encouragement. And we see texts back and forth between them professing love for each other, discussing suicide plans. She even says, if you have a last tweet, can it be about me? I mean, always about her, right? It's, as a defense attorney, you're probably like, are you fucking kidding me? Mm -hmm. Like, could you say one thing that doesn't make it sound like this is your movie screen, you know? Like, hey, I'm planning it out and this is how it's going to go. She also says, love is how you stay alive even after you're gone. And I don't know if they were just putting that there, if they were saying, like, that was her recommendation for the tweet or what. Dr. Bregan says there's a perfect storm here and there's a lot of important things that have been withheld by the prosecution. The defense's motion to find Michelle not guilty is denied by the judge. And that's it. We're going to get to the defense's case next week in part two. And if you want to watch the documentary, you can find it on HBO. We're watching it on Hulu, um, but it is an HBO documentary. So you'd have to have that add on for whoever you watch, you know, stuff on. <laughs> Exactly. So thank you so much for listening and we will catch you for the next episode. Bye. Bye. Get in on the conversation on Facebook and Instagram at Killer Queens Podcast and join our Facebook discussion group at Killer Queens Podcast where we discuss cases covered on the show and all things 90s. If you want to submit a case to be covered on the show, visit www.killerqueenspodcast.com slash case submission and complete the form. If we cover the case, we'll even give you a shout out on the show. Killer Queens is researched, mixed, and mastered by our own damn selves. The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. And our logo was created by Sloane Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Lilas! Lilas. <laughs>